Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. What if the man you called Bishop was hiding something sinister? What if you met every Sunday at his home to hear his thoughts on the Bible, only to find out there were women being tortured right below the very place you were worshiping? This is the story of how one home got its infamous name as the House of Horrors. It was March of 1987 when police headed to 3520 North Marshall Street in North Philadelphia. They were responding to a report that multiple women were being held there. This is a typical nice home and no neighbors or people that drove by ever found it to be suspicious. However, once officers entered the property, what they uncovered was something no one in the community saw coming. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Our story actually begins in the fall of 1986, the day before Thanksgiving. Gary Heidnick was driving the streets of Philadelphia when he spotted 25-year-old Josefina Riviera. She was a young prostitute with a cocaine addiction and a newly born son to support. He sparked up a conversation and ended up taking her to his house to have sex with her. As Josefina was getting dressed, Gary came up behind her and began choking her. According to Josefina, she started to see images of her life as if she was going to die. He released her neck, but her wrists had been handcuffed. He then began to put muffler clamps on her ankles and beat her with a wooden board. To her horror, he took her to the basement and tried to fit her in what Josefina describes as a hole below the basement floor. Okay, hear me when I say that sex work is work, and I respect anyone in that industry. However, the men that come with that job makes it terrifying for people working the streets. Yeah, and this guy was on the hunt for women like her. If it wasn't her, it would have been whoever would have been out that night. Over the next four months, between November 1986 and March 1987, Gary would continue picking up women off the streets and adding them to what he fantasized was his harem. Apparently, Gary's plan for the women was to rape them and have babies with them. His dream was to have a big farm with lots of children and sex slaves to serve him. Gary also seemed to have a type. All of his victims were poor, struggling young black women in their late teens or early 20s. He would manipulate them to come into his home, drug them, and then lock them up. It makes me wonder if he chose that demographic because he was actually attracted to them, or was it because of black girls missing not being taken seriously? I mean, that applies to today, but especially in the 80s. That's totally possible. It's also possible that he was just an opportunist and the demographic in his area was primarily black. And he continues this, right? Yeah. His next victim was 24-year-old Sandra Lindsay, who was abducted on December 3rd, 1986. She was mentally disabled, and her mother claims that she told police in December when Sandra went missing about rumors that she had heard of Gary luring low-income and handicapped women into his house in the neighborhood, but the police took no action. He wasted almost no time in going after another girl when he took 19-year-old Lisa Thomas on December 23rd of 1986. She had accepted a ride from Gary and returned to his house for sex. When she wanted to leave, he tried to strangle her. Oh my gosh, all of these girls are so young. I know none of them thought getting into the car with this man was going to be life-changing. 
I know, but you never really know who's dangerous. You never really know anyone outside of family. By January, his collection of women was becoming an obsession. 23-year-old Deborah Dudley lived only six blocks away from Gary and was abducted on January 2nd, 1987. Deborah did not go timidly and reportedly fought back against Gary often. Well, good for her for fighting back. Yeah, good for her. But then on January 18, 1987, he abducted 17-year-old Jacqueline Askins. She was his youngest victim. He had promised her money if she came to his house for half an hour. That half an hour consisted of him playing video games, but when time was up, he choked her and locked her in the basement with the others. So he didn't even lure her in with sex work. He fully lied and said that all she had to do was watch him play video games, which was probably a relief to her, only for him to take full advantage of her in the end. Why even go through the pretense of actually playing the video game? He was such a weird guy. Right? In February, his torture escalated for Sandra. Before he had started abducting these women, Sandra had been pregnant with his child, but had an abortion. Gary resented her for this, and it caused a lot of anger towards her. He enjoyed punishing Sandra the most, which included hanging her from one of the ceiling beams by her wrists for days and starving her. After hanging from the beams for two days with no food, she developed a fever which led to her death. The women had no more than a minute to react to losing her, When Gary was around, he would warn them that they would be next. I know this had to hit Josephina hard, since she was the first person in the basement with her. Yeah, and as if that wasn't traumatizing enough, he took Sandra's body upstairs and began cutting her into pieces. According to Josephina, he took her upstairs and showed her Sandra's boiling head on the stove, cooked ribs in the oven, and her arms and legs in the freezer. He even went as far as telling her if she didn't cut her bullshit, she's next. Gary had remembered one instance when he had allowed them to watch TV. One of them had made a comment during a dog food commercial that the food looked good enough to eat. This gave Gary the idea to grind up Sandra's flesh and mix it with dog food and force his captives to eat it. Okay, when someone says it looks good enough to eat, they're probably just hungry. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't literally want to eat the dog food. Like, just feed me and give me food. (laughs) Yeah. Though what the women had to do was inhumane and something they would never forget. Later on, Jacqueline would state, if it wasn't for me eating her or that dog food, I couldn't be here today. I feel that. I'm sure the women felt some shame over what they had to do in those circumstances, but you have to do whatever you can to survive. If it came down to life or death, I'm sure a few of us would eat what's in front of us. I mean, the torture inflicted on these women was severe. Gary had built a four-foot hole in the ground that fit three women at a time. The women were not allowed to bathe or comb their hair. They suffered days and weeks of starvation and brutal beatings with sticks. He would rape his victims daily on an air mattress in the basement. He would also frequently force the women to all have sex with each other in front of him for his own sick entertainment. Eventually, Gary started putting a screwdriver in their ears just to watch them squirm and ultimately causing them to go deaf. I read that he wanted the women to be deaf so they wouldn't hear the congregation coming on Sundays and they couldn't hear them scream. Yeah, and he also put socks in their mouths so they couldn't scream while he was torturing them. Did they get anything from what Gary thought was good behavior? Yeah, so to reward good behavior, he would allow TV time, two or three hot dogs for dinner, hot chocolate for breakfast, 
and time outside of the hole. Josephine realized early that in order to survive, she had to play the role of well-behaved. She quickly became his favorite, and he would reward her with the option of being raped in a more comfortable bed in his room. Oh, how kind of him to allow her to choose her place of rape. Because, you know, that just makes it so much more bearable. Right? His rewards were just another form of psychological torture. So, in order to keep her privileges of being tied up outside of the hole and seniority over the other women, Josefina would perform any task that Gary asked of her. For example, she was asked to fill up the pit the girls were in with water, tie a stripped extension cord to the girls' chains, and electrocute them while Gary watched. This heinous act caused the death of Deborah Dudley. You would think that her death would be enough for Gary to see this is more than torture, but it didn't faze him at all. He checked her pulse and had the nerve to say, and I quote, good, now I can go back to having a peaceful basement, end quote. He dumped Deborah's body with the help of Josephina in the Pine Barrens of New Jersey. Okay, your basement is far from peaceful, buddy. Not enough sage in the world could clear that negative energy. (laughs) Deborah was a fighter to the end, and he couldn't control her, and he hated that. That's right. So Josephina may have had seniority over the other women and may have been seen as more of an accomplice, but at the end of the day, she was still a victim and very aware of the situation she was forced into. In order to gain his trust, she realized that she would have to fake Stockholm Syndrome, and she did just that. She was even allowed to leave the house with him in order to help him lure more young women back to his home. Okay, okay. So being into so much true crime all my life, I've always imagined what I'd do if I were in a similar situation. I would probably fake Stockholm Syndrome too, and once I gained the trust, I'd make a run for it. Josephina did what she had to do to save herself along with all of those women. What she did must have been insanely difficult. Pretending to go along with his ideas and participate in his horrible actions in order to gain his trust must have been devastating for her. Oh, I bet. On March 23rd, Gary and Josephina went out driving around looking for a girl to replace Deborah. They found 24-year-old Agnes Adams, a woman Josephina actually knew personally. Gary told Josephina that if she helped him get Agnes, he would allow her to call her family. After he had sex with Agnes, he locked her in the basement with the other women and excitedly asked Josephina if she could get him more girls that easily. However, Josephina had other plans in mind. She convinced Gary to let her have some alone time and call her family like he had promised. Gary agreed and dropped her off at the gas station and they planned for her to meet him back at home shortly after. Instead of calling home, Josephina contacted her boyfriend and told him everything, but he called her crazy and wouldn't listen. She knew what she had to do then and called the police. The moment she got to that phone, she probably felt so relieved. What a smart move. The first chance she got to bring him down as she took it. You go, girl. A short time later, police made their way to the Heidnik home. The moment Gary opened his door, the police say they could smell rotting corpses. There had been previous complaints about the smell of what seemed to be something dead from neighbors, but Gary would tell police and neighbors that he had been cooking and he just burnt the food. Dead bodies do not smell like burnt food. Oh yeah? How do you know that, Sham? Okay, listen. Coming from a girl who has burnt many foods, I can tell you that it has never smelled like dead body, and I haven't (laughs) gotten any complaints from my neighbors. (laughs) 
Okay, so Gary was arrested immediately, and his home was raided, and after four long months of imprisonment, the women were finally free. What Gary Heidnick did was horrific, and there is no excuse for it. But we wanted to figure out what could have created such a monster. We will tell you more about what we found after a quick message. Gary Heidnick was born on November 22nd of 1943. Gary and his younger brother, Terry, were children of divorce that lived with their father and stepmother. During his time with his father, he would be punished in humiliating ways. This included when Gary would wet the bed. His father would hang sheets at his window for everyone to see, and his father would even hold him outside of the window upside down by his ankles while shaking him. His father was known to be verbally and physically abusive towards both of his sons. He even went as far as making both of them wear bullseyes on their shirts and pants, hoping that it would encourage kids at school to beat them. Due to the abuse, his father caused him and his brother to move back home with their mother, Ellen Heidnick, who was a known alcoholic. That's so disgusting. What kind of parent would do that to their own children? That is definitely child abuse. And what parent would ever encourage other kids to harm theirs? Like, he wanted them to feel like shit, not only in the home, but everywhere they went. Right? Good parents want to protect their children, not encourage others to hurt them. It's just terrible. At one point, Gary fell from a tree while playing outside with Terry, which caused him to have a deformed head. He was made fun of at school for it, even being called a football head by his classmates. All of the humiliation caused Gary to be an outcast and have a childhood where he never really fit in with any of his peers. Gary dropped out of high school at 17 years old to join the army, despite having the potential to possibly earn scholarships and go to college. You see, Gary was known as an intelligent young man with an IQ of 130, and for our listeners who aren't aware of the average IQ, it's between 85 to 115, considering him to be highly gifted. A little over a year into his military career, he started suffering from headaches and dizziness. They became so severe, he ended up being sent to the military hospital and was given an honorable discharge due to the doctors diagnosing him with schizoid personality disorder. What is schizoid personality disorder? Schizoid personality disorder is a condition in which people avoid social activities and interaction with others. This disorder usually begins in early adulthood, causing an individual to come off as somewhat of a loner, emotionally withdrawn, and detached. This would explain why it was so hard for Gary to maintain friendships and why he kept to himself since he was a child. Gary's mother committed suicide in 1971, and his brother Terry attempted to take his own life as well. Based on his upbringing, mental illnesses was not an unfamiliar territory for him. After Gary's discharge, he started working at a hospital as a registered nurse and psychiatric nurse. He was later fired due to showing up to work late and being rude to his patients. Ironically, he was soon committed into a psychiatric hospital and attempted to kill himself over 13 times. A nurse of any kind seems like a weird job for someone with his condition. Nurses need to be able to care for and connect with their patients. With his issues, he should have been the patient himself, not the nurse. Clearly, they didn't screen their applicants before hiring them. Clearly. You see, Gary may not have had much luck in life, but when it came to religion, that's where he was thriving. 
1971, Gary would purchase his third home and would start up his church called the United Church of Ministers of God in Philadelphia. He ran it inside of his home, just above the basement where the women were kept. Gary raised over half a million dollars as he learned how to manipulate people and his cult grew. One could assume that his manipulation skills helped him convince all of those women he abducted that he was a safe person to be around. He just up and starts some random church. Can anyone just start preaching to people about whatever they want and call it religion? Research and critical thinking are so important. Don't believe everything you hear. The fact that Gary got his certification to preach leads me to believe that anyone can get it. (laughs) It's ridiculous. (laughs) Right? Gary was sent back to the psychiatric hospital after shooting an acquaintance with a gun and grazing his face with a bullet. Once Gary was able to check out of the hospital, he also signed out his then-girlfriend and Jeanette Davidson's sister, Alberta. Both sisters were mentally disabled and taken from the institution of Harrisburg. He took Alberta home and put her in the basement, where he imprisoned her, sodomized her, raped her, and gave her gonorrhea. Once she was taken back to the hospital and examined, Gary was charged with unlawful restraint, false imprisonment, kidnapping, rape, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. He had already been practicing. This is a huge red flag that should have had him on someone's radar. He had plans for that basement space way before our six girls came into play. Right? Once released in 1983, Gary met Betty Desto. She was what they called a mail-order bride from the Philippines. They communicated for about two years before Betty moved to the United States and quickly married Gary in 1985. Gary was charged with spousal rape during their marriage. He not only raped her, but he would force her to watch him have sex with other women. Betty gave birth to their son, Jesse, before deciding to leave him with the help of the Filipino community. Jesse wasn't Gary's last child, though. He would reportedly have two more children with two different women who would also claim that Gary sexually assaulted them and locked them up. From there, Gary escalated abducting women off the street and holding them hostage in the basement, as Steph had told us earlier. Okay, so we know that thanks to Josephina, he was caught and the women that survived were finally free. But what happened to Gary after that? During Gary's trial, some of his victims spoke to the courtroom as Gary just sat there staring off into the distance and kind of coming off as unbothered. Still in his blue Hawaiian shirt, he was wearing the day of his arrest. His lawyer tried to claim that their client was unaware of his actions and consequences and tried to claim insanity. Gary even went as far as saying that all the women he had allegedly kidnapped were in his house before he purchased it. However, all of his poor excuses as to why he harmed those women were rejected during his trial. Oh, he just found them there when he bought the house? Like anyone buys a house, finds chained up women in the basement, and is like, oh, I guess they come with the house. One less thing for me to do. (laughs) Right? Me and my husband have been looking into homes, and now I know that I need to make it clear to the realtor that I don't want a home that comes with women in the basement. Also, if there is a home that comes with women in the basement, he should probably call the police before I do. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I have bought multiple homes and never realized this was something I should be worried about. (laughs) Okay, tell me what I've been waiting for. What were his charges? Well, in July of 1988, Gary was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, five counts of kidnapping, six counts of rape, 
four counts of aggravated assault and one count of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. He was sentenced to death by lethal injection, but that wasn't the last time we heard from Gary. He would continue to appeal his charges and even attempted and failed to commit suicide on December 31st by overdosing on antipsychotic medication. Wait, what happened to the church of Gary Heidnick? There isn't much information on his church or his followers, but services did continue every Sunday while Gary was charged and jailed for his crimes. This caused a lot of media attention and confusion from outsiders. Whatever he was preaching to his congregation was good enough for them to still believe in everything that he taught them, even knowing just below them were women suffering and being tortured on a daily basis. That's insane. You would think they would want to distance themselves from him after that. While a lot of cults do stick by their leader's side even when they did wrong, he likely had followers up until his final day. At the age of 55 years old, Gary was given his last meal, which included two cups of coffee, two slices of pizza, and he refused to give any last words. Gary would be the last person to be executed by the death penalty in Pennsylvania. He died by lethal injection on July 6th of 1999 at the Rockview State Prison in Belfont, Pennsylvania. Okay, is it just me or does this case seem familiar in a weird way? That's what I was thinking while researching this case. So get this. Gary inspired the character Buffalo Bill from one of the top films, Silence of the Lambs, that made its debut in 1991. Though Buffalo Bill shared a few traits with Ted Bundy, like faking injuries to claim victims, he shared a lot more with Heidnik by capturing, torturing, and throwing his victims into a pit until they were of use to them. That movie was purely made for entertainment, However, Heidnick's victims didn't get to walk in and out of the basement when the director yelled cut. I could never look at that movie again without thinking of the real sinister story that inspired it. Oh my god, that's crazy. I had no idea. Right? That was new information to me as well. And I love crime, but I really don't like the gory stuff, and I can live without it. So safe to say that I will not be watching that movie again anytime soon. We may never really know why Gary Heidnick did what he did, but we do know that at least six young black women were affected by his actions. This story makes you really think, do you really know your neighbors? Did his congregation turn the other cheek or were they really unaware of what was happening a floor below them? Could this have been avoided if mental health was taken more seriously? Sandra and Deborah were never able to reunite with their families because of this man's evil actions. Josefina, Lisa, Agnes, and Jacqueline will have to live with the memory of the abuse they endured. However, thanks to Josefina's brave actions, four survived, and they got to watch the man that tortured them pay for it. Every 73 seconds, an American is sexually assaulted. One out of every six American women have been a victim of attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. But there is help. RAIN is America's largest anti-sexual violence organization. RAIN provides a safe and confidential 24-hour sexual assault hotline, as well as providing safety and prevention programs and information. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, contact RAIN at 1-800-656-HOPE. Again, that's 1-800-656-4673 or you can find them at online.rainn.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. 
Research and writing for this episode was done by Steph and Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions, with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of this week. Steph, what's our Conjure tip of the week? This week we want to tell you about Fire Agate. Fire Agate is a stone of courage, protection, and strength. It has a deep connection to the earth, bringing safety and security along with its calming energy. It helps alleviate fears and reflect harm away. This is a great stone to keep with you whenever you go out, especially if you're going out alone. Remember, ladies, it's never a bad idea to carry a protection stone in your purse or even in your pocket like me. Now, based on today's story, I highly suggest accompanying that crystal with some pepper spray and possibly a taser. (laughs) (laughs) Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.